have been journeying through the, uh, what we have entitled the story over this last few months. And throughout this series, uh, we've seen at the beginning that God created mankind to be in relationship with the Creator. On the first pages of the Bible, we discover Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden, and they have this amazing, perfect relationship with their God. Genesis describes, describes them as they, as they walked daily in the garden with him. It's this beautiful portrait of, of what God created life to be as we know him and enjoy him fully. But man destroyed that perfect state. Instead of enjoying this relationship, we declared war on God. We rejected his story. We rejected his plan. We chose disobedience. We chose sin. We pointed out many times that, that God, in his incredible grace and in his incredible mercy, at the very beginning, almost immediately, God sets a plan in motion, though, doesn't he? And right at the beginning of the Bible, God makes a promise. To, to restore the relationship. And, and throughout the Old Testament, we've discovered God's promises being initiated as he moves mankind towards that restoration. And remarkably, throughout the Old Testament, we witnessed God's, God's heart to be with his, his people, to be with these people that had rejected him. And in his grace, he continues to extend his love to them, his mercy to those that receive his grace by faith. In Genesis, uh, this relationship is expressed throughout uh, with the concept of God's blessing. When we turn to the pages of Exodus, we, uh, we saw a promise that, was, that God gave, comforting words that he spoke many times and that, that are echoed throughout the Bible. And he said, I, I am with you. He expressed his heart to be with his people, to be among them. And at the end of Exodus, we actually see God pitching his tent and camping in the midst of the nation of Israel. God came to dwell in their midst. And in Leviticus, he demonstrates that a, a covenant relationship with God, it, it meant that they, they needed to understand and, and honor the holiness of their God. Because they were his special people who had him dwelling in their midst, they were called to be holy because I am holy, he said. And these themes of sin and grace, covenant and promise, blessings and curses, obedience and disobedience, continue throughout the entire Old Testament. And, but connecting all these themes, God's relationship with man dominates the pages of both the Old Testament and into the New Testament as well. God desires, God desires to know us and to be known by us. However, it's in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that, that everything in the story comes to a culmination. All of God's promises are realized in the person of Jesus. All of God's blessings find their riches in Jesus. All of God's prophecies find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And, and the solution to our sin problem, the, the end of our war with God, our redemption, our salvation, our relationship restored, 
is all established in this one person, God, who stepped into human flesh, Jesus Christ. But there's this great plot twist in the story, isn't there? It's, it's, a, it's a plot twist that, uh, the greatest plot twist that has ever been unfolded in any story is revealed in the coming of Jesus, in, in the incarnation. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the saints, they, they, they were longing to understand. It tells us in 1 Peter that the prophets longed to understand what it was, that the things that they were speaking of. How was God going to fulfill these promises? And, and so much of it remained a mystery to them. They, they just couldn't understand how God was going to accomplish all these different aspects of salvation and grace and justice. And how does all that fit together? How, is, how does God accomplish this? And it's in Jesus that God overturns the entire story. God does the unthinkable in Jesus. He became one of us. And so in the person of Jesus, he once again came and he, and he took walks with us, like in the garden. He came to be with us in the most remarkable way possible. Jesus once again pitched his tent in our midst and dwelt with us. God dwelling among men. Grasp that for just one moment if you can. Just a brief glimpse of what that entails. God dwelt among men. And it's through Jesus that God once again calls us to be holy because he is holy. But he makes this possible through another great twist in the story. He makes a swap, the great substitution of the ages. God in the flesh became your sin. He became my sin, and it was crucified on the cross with him. Jesus became our sin, and those who believe in the Son of God are made holy by the blood of Jesus, and the substitution is that when he took our sin, he gave us his righteousness. We switched accounts. My bankruptcy for his untold heavenly riches. Jesus is God. He didn't just become God. He's been God for all of eternity. However, in the incarnation, we're told that Jesus became a man and God dwelt among us. And I don't think anybody saw it coming. They had glimpses of it, they had prophecies, but I don't think they fully understand what, understood what God was going to accomplish. I, I wonder if even the angels were shocked. Can you imagine the, the scene in heaven when they were told, hey, guess what God's going to do today? I, I don't know if they knew. Uh, we're not really told uh, how much that they were privy to. Um, but when they were told that God would choose to save the world through this amazing turn of events, we know that the angels did announce that God took on flesh, but, uh, but it took even his closest followers quite a while to realize who Jesus was, didn't it? If you would turn your Bibles today to the Gospel of Mark, it's in your New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, it's the second book of the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 8 today, where we find this exchange between Jesus and his disciples. I, I'm going to go back a few verses that come right before this conversation, uh, the feeding of the 4,000 people had just taken place. Jesus performs this incredible miracle. The second time he's fed thousands of people in one sitting. As Jared pointed out last week, the people had some, they had kind of some different expectations of who they thought Jesus should be, didn't they? 
They had this idea that he was going to bring the kingdom, but it was going to be on their terms. They wanted a kingdom like all the other kingdoms of the world, with a, a king that would rule over them and would conquer for them. But, but as we saw, Jesus has, had come to bring a kingdom that started with his reign in men's hearts. John 6 points out that after the feeding of the 5,000, that Jesus had to withdraw from the people because they were going to, they were going to try to make him king by force. They, they loved what he was offering. They loved this idea that he could feed thousands of people and supply every need. And um, so they were going to make him the king. But Jesus slipped away because God's kingdom would not come on man's terms. And then he feeds the 4,000 sometime later. And after this feeding, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they begin to argue with him. They rejected him. And as a result, Jesus rejected them. In fact, he turns his back on them in his grief. He gets back in the boat and he, and he, and he leaves. But the disciples, and this is where I'm supposed to focus, starting in verse 22, the disciples start focusing on their lack of bread. They're getting in the boat. They've just had this conversation. Jesus is, is grieved. He, he offers this deep sigh. And then the disciples start going, oh man, what are we going to eat? Rather than concerning themselves with the gravity of what just happened, that the leadership of Israel rejected their Messiah, they moved on. They just kept on going with the events of everyday life. And you see, they fell into that old danger of becoming just too familiar with Jesus. God took on flesh, and they were just too familiar. And so he asked them, are, are your hearts hardened? He basically says, look guys, I, I provide for all of your needs. You, you're worried about where you're going to get bread? Don't you remember the 5,000? Don't you remember the 4,000? But he says, be, we beware. You must beware of falling into the same sin of unbelief as the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees were spiritually blind, and the disciples were starting to close their eyes as well. They weren't seeing who it is that they were walking with. And so he sets in motion a series of events and a conversation that is going to open their eyes regarding who Jesus is. Read the miracle that takes place starting in verse 22 with me. It says that they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. It's unusual, isn't it? Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he, he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. We see that Jesus and his disciples, okay, so they, they arrive on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and, and there they're met by this group of people and a blind man. They bring this blind man to Jesus, and interestingly, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark 
that it tells us of Jesus healing someone who was blind. Like all the other healings that Mark told us about, uh, Jesus, what's, what's he do? He zones in on the individual, doesn't he? Isn't it amazing how God just knows each individual person, what their needs are? He, he zones in on this blind man. He, he takes him away from all the crowds. He gets him out of the village. Um, and he heals more than just the body. Like all the healings, he deals with the soul as well. And for this man, he leads him by the hand. He takes him, this person away from all the crowds uh, using spit. Okay, that's kind of gross for us. You think, yeah, that's, you know, I don't, if I go to the doctor, I don't, <laughs> I'm not going back to that one. Um, in, in ancient days, spit was actually, a, had common associations with, with healing in that culture. And so, so here's this blind man who can't see what Jesus is doing. He's just in the dark, you know, waiting, you know, is he going to touch me? And what Jesus does is he starts engaging all of his other senses. You see what Jesus is doing to, to engage this person and to meet his needs? He, he can't see him, but, but Jesus is going to communicate with him in other ways. And so he uses the other senses. But what's very unusual about this miracle is that Jesus completes it in phases. Does, did that strike you as kind of funny? Do you ever see any other miracles in the Bible where Jesus does part one and part two? I can't think of any. Uh, the first time he asks the man after he, after he spits on his eyes and he, and he touches him, do you, do you see anything? Do, note, note that phrase. That's really important. Do you see anything? And the man's vision returned, but it was, it was blurry. It was distorted. And so Jesus touches him again, and his sight is fully restored. Mark tells us that he saw everything clearly. So, why the steps? Why the phases in healing this man? Is it because Jesus made a mistake? Oops, <laughs> must be losing my touch, right? Is he losing some of his power? You know, crucifixion's on the way, so, you know, it's starting to drain. Is that what's going on? No, he's God. That's not the case. So what's Jesus doing? I believe that it's significant that this story falls right in the middle between Jesus' conversation with his disciples in the boat, talking about bread, and he's talking about their hardness of heart, and, and they're, they're blind. They are becoming spiritually blind and just used to Jesus being around. They're not seeing clearly. And it falls between that conversation and the one that he's about to have with them as they walk 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. On the boat, Jesus had asked them in verses 17 and 18, do you not yet perceive having eyes do you not see? Is that significant for what happens right after this? Now here it's probably the same day as the blind man is brought to Jesus. But his question to the blind man echoes the question that he just asked the disciples in the boat. Do you see anything? Mark is begging you to notice this. If you're reading through the text and you see this, he's, he's just begging you to say, hey, pay attention here because these stories aren't independent of one another. This belongs together. Nine times, in fact, in verses 23 to 25, he uses eight different Greek words for seeing. Isn't that cool? Eight different words for seeing. It's, it's a little bit overkill by Mark, but he wants you to connect these two events just, just like I think Jesus wanted the disciples to connect them. 
just had this whole conversation about seeing, and then he heals a blind man. And you see, the Pharisees were spiritually blind. A, a blind, as blind as this man was physically. But the disciples, they, they weren't really seeing things clearly either, were they? Their vision was off. Things were blurry. I, I think that perhaps the partial healing was an object lesson for the disciples. Nowhere else do we find Jesus doing a miracle like this. And, and I don't know that the blind man ever knew what was going on or why. But I think the disciples started to get the picture. And again, to my knowledge, this is the only time that Jesus heals like this. But like the blind man's vision was unclear, the disciples' perception was also unclear. It was distorted. But hope was not lost for them, and they too are about to see everything clearly. Just as Jesus also wants you to see him clearly. And so Mark continues, verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, again, this is a 25-mile hike. On the way, they have this conversation. And he says to his disciples, he asks them, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you believe personally that Jesus is? A good man? Did a lot of great things, but, but just a man? There's plenty of talk among the people. Uh, Elijah uh, was an Old Testament prophet that the first century Jews were fascinated with. He was a prophet who had been taken up into heaven. And, uh, and, and he was raised into heaven in a chariot of fire, taken away. So could it be, is it possible that Jesus was Elijah come back from his chariot ride? Or maybe he's John the Baptist. Even Herod thought that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Certainly, Jesus could be numbered among the prophets. But as much of a compliment as any of these answers were, they were incorrect. All of them. Elijah was a great prophet and a man of God, but Jesus is one who far surpasses Elijah, John the Baptist, and any of the other prophets. In the same way, people today, they ask us, who, who, who is Jesus? You face that question. Who, who is he? Who do you say that I am? And some would say he was a great prophet. Even the Muslims in the Quran tells us that that Jesus was a great prophet. They believed that. They believed that he performed miracles. They believed that he was born of a virgin. But he, he just wasn't the son of God. Islam um, teaches those things, but they don't believe that he was the son of God. He was just a great prophet. And if you go around the world, there are many different versions that people believe in. But most of them don't believe that he's actually God. And so Jesus presses the disciples for more, doesn't he? This is the moment that, that that entire day was leading to. Everything from the conversation from the Pharisees, the boat ride, the conversation about their spiritual blindness, the healing of the blind man, everything led to this one question, starting in verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? 
Peter answered him, You are the Christ. In Matthew, the apostle gives us Peter's more complete answer. He says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, this is the great aha moment for the disciples. I don't think they fully realized throughout all this time who they were dealing with. They were starting to gain glimpses of it. There was a moment where they, a few moments actually, where they worshipped him. And they're getting it, but there were some things that they just weren't seeing. And it's this question that the disciples are asked in chapter 4 of Jesus in the book of Mark. When he calmed the storm on the sea. Do you remember what their response was? They said, who is this? Who is this then? That even the wind and the sea obey him. And now Jesus takes that same question and he throws it back at the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? You see, if we want to start seeing things more clearly, then God must reveal to us who he is. And we must make a personal decision and decide that we who we that decide who we believe Jesus is. It is not enough to know the answers that others give. I want you to understand that. It is not enough to understand the answers that others give. He wants to know who you believe he is. Is he a good man? Is he a prophet? Or is he God in the flesh, the Messiah? Peter, speaking as the representative of the, and the leader of the other disciples, makes this great declaration. You are the Christ. The, the word Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. Christ is the Greek word uh, for the Hebrew Messiah. And so Peter and the other disciples, they, they recognize that Jesus is more than a prophet. They recognize that he's the promised one. He's the deliverer. He's our salvation. Jesus is the one who fulfills all the hopes and all the promises that God ever gave from Genesis to Malachi. Peter not only declared that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but he also made a declaration that Jesus is divine. He's God. When he says, you're the son of God, that is a declaration of Jesus' deity. And this declaration was not something that Peter just came up with on his own, was it? He didn't reason it out and go, oh, okay, yeah, that's obvious to me. I, I get it. You know, I, I've worked it all out, and I'm just really smart. No, God revealed it to him, and Jesus tells him that. He says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And my friends, in the same way, God who gave sight to the blind, and, and who is the only one that can do that, also gives us the ability to see. And the first question we must answer is, who is this man? Who do you believe that Jesus is? Understand though, it is not enough for you to know what other people say. You may know what your parents believe, Who do you say Jesus is? You may know what your pastor believes. But who do you say Jesus is?
you may know what they say on the radio. But what do you believe? When you examine Jesus' claims in the Gospels, my friends, it is evident that Jesus claimed and asserted that he was God. The Jews knew this. You're going to hear people today, they'll talk about it on YouTube and on the radio, and they'll say, oh, Jesus never really said, I'm God. Oh, no, he did. In no uncertain terms, he, he, he declared to be God. Uh, when he said, I am, and the Jews picked up stones to stone him to death, it, it wasn't because he said, I'm a good guy. He, he was declaring to be Yahweh. And, and so they picked up stones because he was making a claim to be God Almighty. The disciples worshiped Jesus, and they bowed down to him. You remember that? They got off the boat. I think it was even before they got out of the boat. They bowed down, and they worshiped him. You remember what happened in the book of Daniel? Daniel is interacting with an angel, and he's overwhelmed. And, and Daniel bows down in reverence and worship. And the angel said, bring it on, right? No. No, the angel said, don't do that. I'm just a servant like you are. Don't worship me. Worship God. Go to the book of Revelation. John does the same thing. John is writing one of the Gospels. And what's John do? He's overwhelmed by the presence of this angelic being. And he also bows down to worship. John, the apostle who knew Jesus. And what's the angel say? Don't do that. Twice. And the disciples bow down and they worship Jesus. And Jesus says what? Nothing. He accepts their worship. So understand Jesus claims to be God. He accepted their worship. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes claims that only God could make. He quotes passages of Scripture that prove that he believed he was God. And he put words in his mouth that were words that had come from God's mouth and that only God could say. So whatever you believe about him, understand that Jesus emphatically claimed that he is God Almighty and that he came to dwell among us in human flesh. C.S. Lewis is, I believe, the one who stated that Jesus was either a, a liar, a lunatic, or the Son of God. I think others said it before him, but he said it like that. Jesus was one of those three things. He claimed to be God. But if but he excuse me, he claimed to be God, but if he knew that he wasn't, if Jesus knew that he was not God, but he claimed to be God, then what does that make him? Make him a liar. And if he's a liar, then he is not a good man. And you are wasting your time being here today. You don't want to follow a liar. He claims to be God. But if he believed this, but it wasn't true, I mean, how many people do you know that say, I'm, I'm God? But there's a few of them. And, and we usually lock them up in padded rooms. Um, I mean, they really believe they're God. If Jesus believed it and yet it was not true, then Jesus was a lunatic. He's crazy. 
And if he was crazy, then again, you do not want to follow such a man. Who, who knows where a lunatic will lead you? Jesus claimed to be God. The only other option is that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, all the Old Testament hopes, all the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is the creator who took on flesh and he came to save us. And so with Peter, we must profess, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. With Colossians chapter 1, we must declare He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. With Hebrews 1, we, we must proclaim He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And with John chapter 1, we must announce, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And with all the voices of heaven that we read in Revelation, we must cry out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. My friends, Jesus is God. He left us with no other choice about who he claimed to be. So who do you believe that Jesus is? There's one other important question that Jesus answered, though, that we need to look at. Look at verses 31 and 33. You see, there was great anticipation for the Messiah. People were looking forward to the coming of the promised one. They didn't fully understand how it was going to take place, but the topic of the day uh, had led to confusion about what the Messiah was going to come to do. As we saw last week, Jared talked to us about the kingdom. People had an idea of what the kingdom was supposed to look like, but it wasn't on Jesus' terms, it was on theirs. And verse 31 tells us that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so Jesus begins teaching them. Verse 32, it tells us that Jesus taught it very plainly. Like the, the blind man that they, 
they're seeing, but they're not seeing everything clear yet, clearly yet. Even though Jesus is putting it out in the open. They won't see everything clearly until after the resurrection, in fact. But Jesus does teach them four things. Jesus tells them that he will suffer many things. He will be rejected by the Sanhedrin, the official council of the Jews. He will be killed, and he will rise again after three days. And I don't think they quite comprehended that last part especially. Rise again. They, they thought I was speaking in metaphors again. Mark tells us that Peter took Jesus aside and he rebuked him. The, the same Peter who just confessed Jesus as the Messiah, who just confessed him as God, now decides that this God made a mistake. <laughs> Do you see that? You're God. You're the Messiah. No, that's wrong. You can't go do that. Oops. Peter's the one to correct it. But verse 33 indicates that the other disciples were witnesses of this. They were probably in agreement with Peter's rebuke. So, so Jesus, he sharply turns the rebuke back. You, you see, Peter was offering the same thing that Satan had offered Jesus when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Do you remember that? Satan took Jesus on top of a a pinnacle, a high point. And uh, he offered Jesus to turn rocks into bread. Several different temptations throughout that time. But one of them, Satan said, um, worship me. Bow, bow down, just once. And I'll give you all the kingdoms right now. Peter's basically offering the same thing. He says, Jesus, take, take the easy way and I, I'll give you all the glory of a kingdom now is what Satan offered. Jesus had his face set toward the cross and he knows the purpose for which he came. And Peter says, no, Lord, let's take the kingdom. Peter has his idea of what the Messiah had come to do and, and dying was not a part of that. Suffering was not a part of that. But God's plans included not only the deliverance of an earthly kingdom, God's plans also included our deliverance from sin itself. Jesus and the Bible say this very plainly. Jesus came to die for our sins. And so we see that God became a man. And we crucified him on a cross. But in doing so, he died in our place. He made possible that substitution in which he became our sin and he gives to us his righteousness that can only come by God's grace when you believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And so therefore, salvation is not something that you can earn. You can't repeat what Jesus did. And, and being a good person, getting baptized, going to church, none of those things, none of that can make you acceptable before God. Salvation is not by works, but through grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, who suffered and was rejected, who died, and then who rose again on the third day. And so who do you believe Jesus is? And what do you believe Jesus came to do? Again, if you think that he just came to live a good life and set a good example for us, then you are as blind as the religious leaders who rejected him. And you are in need 
of a Messiah to open your eyes, to show you plainly that he came to die for you. And so it comes down to this. Number one, who do you say that Jesus is? What do you believe that he came to do? And if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and if you believe that Jesus did what he came to do, namely to die for your sins and to conquer death by the resurrection, then you will choose to follow him. Following Jesus means that you surrender to him and you give him authority over your life. Following Jesus means that your life is no longer yours. But being a follower of Jesus Christ means that your life is saved by God's grace. And the relationship is restored. Eternity is yours. Following Jesus means that he saves your soul and you will see his kingdom and share in his glory. Jesus asked an important question that every one of us must ponder. Do you see? Father, we thank you once again for your word, for what it teaches us here. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who showed us that he is the way, that he is the truth, and he is the life, and that knowing him means knowing you. We thank you that Jesus made it clear who he is. Oh, Lord, we're, we're so grateful for what he came and accomplished. But, Father, I, I pray that, that we would not be blind like the spiritual leaders of Jesus' day were. I pray that we would see clearly, unlike the disciples did in those moments where they, they kind of got it, but they weren't seeing the whole picture. Lord, might we understand clearly the deity of Jesus, that in him, God came and dwelt among us to be with us once again, to walk with us, to show us who you are. I pray that each one of us would understand who he is, what he did, and that we would believe. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.